Due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Lock your doors, close the blinds, change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This podcast is produced and hosted by Chris Carr. On today's podcast, we're joined by James Bond director John Glenn. John directed five Bond films, starting from Fewer Eyes Only and finishing with my favourite James Bond film, controversially for some people, Licence to Kill. On this interview, I'm joined by Scott from the excellent podcast Spy Hard. Scott, how are you? I am very well, Chris. Thanks for having me on the show. It's a pleasant and wonderful to finally be here. Excellent. Well, it's good to have you on. It's been the other way around in the past, mm. so it's nice to have you on here. Um, so just for the benefit of the audience, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and Spy Hearts? Sure. Well, um, I'm one half of Spy Hearts podcast. Basically, we're a spy movie podcast. I know you guys focus on more real life than uh, most of the time than us. Uh, but we look at different spy movies throughout the entire history of, of spy movies, not just James Bond. We look at that, certainly. But, uh, you know, Jason Bourne, Mission Impossible, everything like that, all the way back to the silent era. Like you'll see Buster Keaton films on there from time to time. Like we really do run the gamut from when film started to now looking at different spy movies. Fantastic. Well, it's a great show. And uh, I don't just say it because I've been on in the past, but it's, it's a brilliant podcast. And uh, and I wish you all the best with that. So thank you for joining me on this interview today, because honestly, it wouldn't have happened without your help. So thank you for setting it up. No, thank you for having me. And it was uh, absolutely wonderful to go through this experience with you. Excellent. Thank you. Well, let's let's go into our interview with John Glenn, and I'll catch you on the other side. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast. So, John, welcome to the podcast and thank you for having us over. It's a pleasure. It's good to have you on. So um, my first question, and I hope I'm right in this, am I right that you were in the RAF, your national service, before you went into filmmaking? Uh, I was already in filmmaking. Yeah. I was. Um, I had to leave a film that I was working on um, to, when I got called up by the, uh, the Air Force. And um, yeah. I served, I was serving 18 months, and then the Korean War started. Oh, wow. This was 1950. Yeah. And uh, suddenly, I was counting the days when I would get out, and then suddenly they put it up to two years. So I, I spent two years in the air force. Oh wow! And were you um, were you flying or were you sort of ground staff? No, no, I was ground staff, yeah. and uh, I was I finished up as a motor mechanic driver. Yeah, uh, which was a, uh, another way of saying do nothing, basically. <laughs> <laughs> which was uh, f fortunately, it turned mm. out to be quite fortuitous because the, the industry the film industry in england had one of the worst years mm. ever while i was in the air force yeah and a lot of my friends left the business mm. altogether mm. and i was in a very junior capacity in the editing rooms uh, yeah. when i got called up and uh when i came back it suddenly got busy again that's <laughs> what that's what happens in the film industry yeah. it's either all go or all stop yes know? yes i can relate to that the reason why i brought the rf because quite one of the things i noticed about your james bond films there's a lot of aircraft involved so i was wondering if there was some sort of flying passion that may have influenced that <laughs> no um funnily enough the only reason i went in the air force really was because um i a, a the uniform was mm. was <laughs> was better yeah. and uh also i had two sisters who had been served in the raf yeah. during the war and and um i, I felt it gave me a bit of an in you yeah. know to get in there i said oh I, it's a family business sort of yeah. thing and yeah. I, I was able to get into the raf and otherwise i'd have finished up the square bash you know being in the infantry i didn't mm. fancy that at all <laughs> Actually, years ago, John, in a previous life, I spoke to you about your role editing on A Majesty's Secret Service. I interviewed you quite a time ago now. And sort of moving on from that, because obviously you, you spoke about 
being in filmmaking and doing your service and then going back to filmmaking. And if we're looking at sort of the Bond films here, when you got, I would say promoted, although I say both are equal part jobs, when you took your first job on as a director for James Bond, what was that process like for you? How did that come about, that sort of first four years only, as it were? Yeah, well, it took a long time. Um, uh, you know, I, I had to, first of all, establish myself in the editing world. And uh, quite frankly, I didn't, when I started, I didn't really know much I didn't have a clue, really, quite honestly. I sort of stumbled through. But I I spent many years, you know, it was on some great films, like The Third Man was one of my early films, and The Wooden Horse, mm-hmm. worked with some wonderful people. Funnily enough, uh, one, one of the assistant editors on uh, The Third Man was a chap called Bunny Warren. Obviously, they call him Bunny because his, his surname was Warren. <laughs> but um, he was a, he was an assistant uh, senior to me, and he taught me all the rudiments of being an assistant film editor. And uh, many, many years later, when I eventually became a film director, uh, I was going to a screening up in Water Street, mm-hmm. and a, a figure came stumbling along the road ahead of me. And as he came closer... I recognised it as Bunny Warren, and I said, "Bunny," I said, and he looked, stopped, and he looked at me, and he said, "John, haven't you done well?" <laughs> and I almost cried. It was, it was strange, really. It was just, you know, was, this is a chap that had served in in the fleet air arm during the war, and uh, you know that they were on pills all the time to keep them when they were flying and what have you so he was very slow in the way he walked that's how I recognized him by his walk really as he came towards me um, and one of wonderful person and taught me a lot in the early days and he was generally pleased that I'd gone on so well you know but it, the, the actual process uh, of becoming an editor is a long drawn out uh, thing and it's a very artistic an extremely important job in in films, the editing side. And uh, you you don't learn it overnight. It takes a while. Um, You've got to throw... uh, In those days, of course, there was a lot of technical stuff, which you don't have today. Uh, I think it's for younger people going into editing, it's all about pushing buttons, whereas in my day, you you had this terrible spaghetti to work with (laughs) (laughs) film. And... uh, it it was uh, difficult to handle. You had to learn how to handle it, and you had to work quickly. I tell you, uh, it was a very very quickly, fast process. And uh, on the, working on the, the wooden horse, I always remember there was a screening for the great man Sir Alexander Calder up in mm. one four six Piccadilly, which was his head office. And I remember we were all rushing; it was all hands to the pump to get the film ready to show to the great man. Um, I was work- we were working at Shepparton Studios and the car was waiting and I was in there frantically joining film together and, and I managed to join a piece, you know, it was all put together with paper clips and I was working so quickly a piece fell out and I managed to join it in upside down. So halfway through the screening the, the, the image was inverted and uh, everyone turned around and glowered at me, you know. Um, I was at the back of the theatre at 146 Piccadilly and um, uh, suddenly the great man, Sir Alexander Calder, suddenly lifts his hands up and start, makes a gesture that he wanted the, the, something lifted. Mm. And I, everyone was a bit puzzled and they assumed it was the sound. So they turned round to me and said, put the sound up. And I had a control which said raise and lower. So I I wasn't familiar with the theatre, so I saw rays, so I hit this button, nothing happened, I hit it again, mm-hmm. and suddenly the lights all went up in the theatre and the curtains drew on the film <laughs> halfway through and they all scrambled all over me and reversed the process uh, and got the thing going again. And uh, Sir Alexander Calder just sat there, whether he was asleep or not, I don't know, but he, he didn't. Didn't worry about it at all. And because I was only about 15 or 16, I got away with it. <laughs> I imagine you sunk quite low in your seat at that when the, when the bit came upside down. You just, oh, no, oh. that wasn't me. Well, there you go. 
But it's it's all it's 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 a lesson again. Everything's a lesson in life, and you know when you do things in a panic and you're rushing and everyone's rushing, is you've got to make time for yourself. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you know disasters happen. And you know the, the the part of the film being upside down, it's just avant garde. It's just uh, <laughs> yeah. you're just pushing the limits. He didn't, of he didn't react to it. Uh, everyone glowed at me, you know. But you make a lot of mistakes when you're young, and and you funny enough. I feel sorry for a lot of the people today. They go to school until they're in their late 20s. And uh, people don't forgive the mistakes quite like they forgive a 15 or 16-year-old, you know. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot to be said for starting young in a business, really. I think there's probably too much education today. And making mistakes. It's very important because you don't learn oh, yeah, otherwise. But you, you need to make you need mistakes to when you're young mm. um, and get away with it. But uh, when you get older, you make mistakes. Can be a disaster. <laughs> well, you, you speak about sort of learning, learning your your tropes, learning your learning your game of editing, and you speak about the third man. Speak about I'm actually Secret Service things that you worked on there. But getting that job as the director for For Your Eyes Only, what did you do to prepare from sort of that jump from editing and second unit directing to directing a full feature film? Well, I was very fortunate because I <clears throat> I was um, I saw the the beginning of television. Uh-huh. Um, you know, a, a series, TV series like Danger Man was one of the films that I was editing on. And um, we, we had a producer called Sidney Cole. He used to be a, a film editor as well. He was a very good producer. He gave me the opportunity to do second unit work on the TV series because the schedules were so tight mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, on a film like Danger Man, there's lots of inserts, like mm. little miniature tape recorders, which was a Philly Shave razor, which had been adapted to, to record. And uh, so all those those little tight shots take ages to light and mm. to get done properly. And um, I would ring uh, central casting to get an, an actor down to do the handwork on the... Mm-hmm you know, to double for Patrick McGowan's hands. And they always sent someone down who was about 75 years of age and been sort of just des- desperate for a bit of work and uh, had the shakes, you know. So, you know, when you've got uh, a pack lens on the camera and you're that close, you know, if you've got a shaky hand, you're in a lot of trouble. Mm. So I used to say, why don't you sit there and have a cup of tea? And I used to get in there and do it myself, <laughs> which was fine with the union because, you know, at least you're still employing the chap. So I was able to do so. All those little inserts I used to do myself. So your Patrick McGowan's hand is brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I, I was young and I, I hadn't got the shakes, at least not then. <laughs> but, uh, no, that was all good experience doing all those inserts. And then gradually... Uh, I moved on to doing um, some action sequences, you know, Carl Rumbys. started off with Carl Rumbys and mm-hmm. things. And when we were working at Pinewood Studios, there's a little crossroads uh, quite adjacent to the studio. And there's like three or four ro- well, I think there's three roads all come in and there's a little island in the middle with a, some shrubbery and tree. And I used to set the camera up there. And I would do about eight different shots of the car running by without moving the camera more than two feet, purely to keep the schedule because, uh, you know, I had so much to do in such a short space of time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if you'd gone over, you would never get asked again. So it was very important to, to be quick. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, it's, you know, you, you can change a shot just by, you know, putting it at what we used to call a dingleberry in the foreground, a couple of leaves in the foreground. It looks like a different shot mm-hmm. in a different place, whereas, in fact, it's the same shot that you've done previously. So you learn all those tricks, you know, uh, shortcuts. And um, I, I, I learned how to, you know, I had good ideas, I suppose. Um, and I learned how to do run and make them dramatic and what have you. Mm. And then gradually you get more and more important work as the, as the producers see that you know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, I, I was I was editing and finding time to do those shots. Mm-hmm. And uh, I used to use my assistants. I used to delegate. I'd say, you know, get on and join those few shots together. And then when I came back from doing my second unit, I come back look at what they've done, and I said, "What did you do that for?" You know, so and so and so. You know, think dramatic. And gradually, these chaps who were my assistants all became editors, because the only way you you learn is by actually doing the job. Mm-hmm. 
you can have all the theory in the world, it helps you, but it doesn't, you know, at the end of the day, you've got to be able to handle the, the film. But today it's different. It's a completely different thing because you're all on electronics now. It's all push button. So um, I think it was just as well um, that um, I went on to become a director because I don't think I could handle the stuff today, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> Well, you said so your first Bond film was for your eyes only. What was that like um, moving from editor to being director in that movie? Because that's a big responsibility. What was that like and how did you prepare? I was very, very fortunate in the fact that um, I'd edited three Bond films mm. prior to that. Uh, so I was very familiar with all the crew and the mm. cast and the producers. Roger Moore, of course, was a great benefit. Uh, he was such a pro. Never fluffed a line. I mean, I don't know how he did it. I did ask him one day. He said, oh, it's, it's a technique you learn, you know, as an actor. But um, he was always there. And uh, sometimes, you know, we'd, be, we'd choose a lady um, in a scene for her beauty and, her, you know, her looks. She probably wasn't a very good actress at all. So, you know, you do about eight or nine takes on this actress and poor old Roger was feeding her the lines off screen and I used to feel for him a bit because he was always take one, mm. take two, mm. done, you know. <laughs> he was so professional, but he was very patient with everyone uh, and very professional, uh, very good director himself, mm. actually. Were there any sort of influences for you with your eyes only? Uh, because it's obviously quite a, for Roger, it's quite a dramatic film. Mm. Um and in many ways, I felt like there's some similarities with what you did later with License to Kill. Uh, but with Your Eyes Only, was there anything that was sort of driving you in that direction to sort of make it more dramatic and, should we say, more grounded? Well, uh, Spy Who Loved Me um, was when I came back in the fold with mm. Louis Gilbert. Uh, I was working with Louis Gilbert in Paris on another film, Seven Nights in Japan, it was called. And uh, Thelma Connell was the editor and uh, she got sick on the film and in fact she died on the film and uh, on her deathbed she whispered to Lewis Gilbert get John Glenn <laughs> because I'd worked with Thelma on TV series for Just Men many yeah, years before yeah. and uh, I always remember there were two sound editors uh, I was a sound editor at that time mm. and um, there were two of us and uh, she, she, at the end of the thing, there was only room for one person to stay. And she called me into her office and she said, John, dear John, she said, I know that when you leave here, you'll get another job straight away. He said, but the other chap, Freddie, will struggle. So do you mind leaving first so he can have a few more weeks work? And I said, sure. And she was paying me back for that. <laughs> all those years later yeah so it's quite it's quite amazing i was almost willed to lewis gilbert mm. although i had worked with lewis mm. previously uh, as a sound editor uh, the admirable Crichton and cry from the streets i was sound editor with lewis and when he called me to offer me the job in paris he said oh you're that tall lean chap aren't you and i said well i'm not so lean anymore <laughs> Well, you, you, you mentioned, um, Chris mentioned License to Kill. I know you wanted to get to that in a minute, but just on For Your Eyes Only, because it's actually one of my favourite of the Bond films, because I prefer the more sort of serious toned mm. yeah, Bond yeah. films. They're from Russia with Loves, those sort of things, all up to the Craig films now. And that's why I always go to For Your Eyes Only when it, thinks, uh, when it comes to Roger Moore. When it comes to the tone of that film, obviously it's quite a shift from from what came before. I think Moonraker previously, that's a very different tonal film to For Your Eyes Only. Was that a conscious effort from from Broccoli and from above to make it that, or was that something that you sort of injected yourself? Well, I mean, it, Roger was not supposed to do that film. He, mm. was, um, the, he was in the middle of negotiations with Cubby Broccoli, and uh, he's, he was out of contract, and... Uh, I was my first task was to find a new James Bond. I always mm. remember Cubby said, "We got to find a new guy because Roger's not doing it anymore. He was getting too expensive, and they were haggling, you know." And 
I, like a fool, believed every word of it. And uh, I went out and I went all over the world testing Australian actors, American actors, you name it. Uh, and eventually, at the end of the day, it was a it was a poker da- a game between Cubby and Roger because they were both quite shrewd guys when it came to money. And um, uh, so, it, you know, it was it was an effort to keep his money within bounds, shall we say. And uh, eventually, of course, Roger agreed to do it. He d- he kind of resented me initially because although I'd worked with Roger on about five films up to that point, in fact, he turned around one day and said, "Am I in your contract or are you in mine?" Um, but he, uh, he 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 was he took it very well in the end. But um, he, he kind of you know he'd heard that of course that I was testing. That was the whole point of the thing. I was testing other actors, and initially it was a bit sort of frosty the first couple of days, but. Roger couldn't hold a grudge for long, and uh, you know we we were very good friends, and uh, we had a wonderful working relationship. But to answer your question, he, he, my instructions were to make the series more earthy after Moonraker, which had gone into space and all that, and gone a little bit silly, I think. And uh, I had to bring the series down to earth, and we had one of one or two notable moments on that film where uh, Roger and I kind of disagreed about what he should do. And I think that was the main one was when he pushed the car off the cliff. And uh, Roger wanted uh, the weight of the little flag emblem, the dove emblem, to be the counterbalance that sent the car hurtling to, with Locke, uh, the villain in the car, to his death. <clears throat> and um, I said, no, Roger, I think that he killed your best friend on the film. I said, I think you would kick that car off the cliff, not just be too subtle about it. And uh, we had a, quite a discussion about it. And uh, it was a pivotal pivotal uh, turning point, I think, in the way Roger played in the film. And uh, although he had lots of fun and lots of there were lots of laughs and things, and he's quite lighthearted, uh, it was a moment of high drama. And after we we shot it both ways, I mean, I, I, I said, okay, we, we'll try it your way, but then I want you to do, do it my way. And he readily agreed. And at the end, I did both. He tossed the, the dove emblem in and then kicked it, kicked the car off the cliff. And uh, it was, a, it, it, afterwards, Roger turned around and admitted that was the right decision. Yeah, it's a very dramatic point. And I think it leads nicely into the tone of License to Kill. So before we go into Lester, what was the transition from Roger to sort of Timothy Dalton like? You know, because you're bringing in a, a new actor to portray Bond, and I know you'd already been on this sort of quest earlier. But what was it like now handling this official transition that's happening? Well, that, that's always a, a, a tremendous gamble, I think, when you change your Bond actor. You know, there aren't that many. It's a, it's a, a kind of strange role, really. You you need a physically attractive specimen of a man at the same time you need someone who's a a good actor but doesn't have to be a Shakespearean actor like Timothy Dalton was today I think there's there's quite a number of actors who could probably play James Bond but at that time there seemed to be a bit of a dearth of that type of actor and uh, I remember when I was in Los Angeles with Cubby and we were discussing this and I said to him what about Timothy Dalton because we had considered him in the past when he was young after he did um, Lion in Winter um, they they considered him he was very young then very good actor um, and he didn't he wasn't really interested in playing James Bond at that time but times move on and now like 15 years later or whatever it was he was more uh, you know, in tune with taking that part. Mm. But he wanted to bring his own brand mm. of personality to the role. And we dis- discussed it at length, and uh, we agreed that we would use his acting ability, which was considerable, um, to put a harder edge on on the Bond, more more in the in the sort of Fleming style mm. thing which he originally wrote. So we were going back to the roots of Bond, really. Mm. And... Um, and Timothy, he, he, I remember a couple of times on the set, uh, on the first film, you know, um, he liked to put his hands in his pockets and things like that. And I took him to one side and I said, yeah, Tim, don't put your hands in your pocket. I said, you know, if Bond was a naval officer, he would have, it would be ingrained in him not to do that and things like that. And 
I don't think Tim necessarily agreed with me, but he, he went along with it. But, um, you know, you've got stupid little games like, you know, he, he, off on the side of camera, I couldn't see he'd have a hand in his pocket, you know, things like that. So, yeah, you, you accept certain things. You, But, um, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't want him to be, you know, I, always Bond is always immaculately dressed, you know, whatever occasion. And it's part of the character, so I was very insistent. But uh... I think he has the best James Bond introduction in the whole series. The whole Gibraltar sequence is brilliant. Yeah. Did the because I know Timothy kind of came in quite sort of late to the process. Did him coming in affect the script for for the Living Daylights? Yeah. Well. Um, yeah. We hardened. You see, we'd run out of um, Fleming stories actually, and we were using short stories and titles and uh michael wilson and richard maybarm um you know had to really invent these stories to a large degree although we did go back into the history of bond and use some of the mm. sequence sequences which hadn't been filmed mm. which were in the books on the some of the original books like the uh for instance in the the, the greek thing about under the underwater stuff which had been in in an earlier book and not been used for what reason it wasn't used i don't know but i mean there was, there was so much material action material in the fleming books mm. um and they made great use of them in the past yeah so uh, you know we we actually more or had to construct a whole we used the, the on for your eyes only uh, we used a short story which was called for your eyes only but it only occupied probably about 10 minutes of the film. And it's a very good scene, I must say. It's the original Fleming, and uh, it was beautifully played by um, Roger and um, Carol Bouquet, who was a very, very beautiful French girl. Mm. Funnily enough, there was Roger did, used to query some of my action ideas, and, and when he escaped from the mob by the swimming pool in that film, that I, I said to him, yeah, you get take one of these beach umbrellas and and use it to cushion your fall when you leap 18 feet off the top of the balcony onto the ground below when you, to escape and uh, eyebrows were lifted as you can imagine when i suggested that but you know same thing when i when i said on the octopus that we rode him into the circus and he had to wear a clown's outfit mm, mm. he said joe you can't be serious <laughs> me dressed up as a clown but it was a perfect disguise you know it's yes. actually one of the most serious parts of that film despite the costume you know, yeah exactly. what's going on in the yeah. background of that so like dramatic... it's like a counterpoint that's mm. what i loved about mm -hmm. it you know it was unexpected even dressing him up in a, a gorilla's outfit in the tra in the train, you know, uh, they're searching for him uh, on, in this carriage, and it's all the costumes are there, and you, you pan onto the ape monkey's costume, and mm. there's Roger's eyes turning, you know, oh, the lovely moment, you know, and uh, the audience loved it, yeah. you know, it's, yeah. it's again counterpoint. You're mm. in a very dramatic situation, and then you throw in a bit of humour. It's what Bond does best, I find. That's that that being able to switch between those two moments yeah, within a is. film. It's something that I think Bond I think films do very well. It is very much Bond, isn't it? Tongue in cheek. Yeah. Um, one moment in that transition phase that Chris was talking about between having Dalton join the production for Living Daylights and Licence to Kill, there is a brief moment in time, and there's a couple of photos of you with Pierce Brosnan, where Pierce was going to be Bond yeah. for that oh, yeah. film. I, I shot the, the test for Pierce, yeah. and he was very good. Mm -hmm. It was just that he was under contract with Mary Tyler Moore for exactly. Remington Steel. And when she heard that we were going to use him as Bond, of course she enacted his contract and wanted to do a continue her series. But that was not... Cubby Broccoli wasn't going to have that, so he was he was put to one side, shall we say, for for a few years. And actually, it was a good thing because he was he was very good in it. Pierce a very good, made a very good Bond, more in the Roger Moore mold. I felt mm. you know he wasn't a, a heavy Bond. He was, was light like Roger was. You know, a lot of humour. Yeah. And all's well definitely ended well when it came to Pierce, you know, when he came back in 95 yeah. with Goldeneye. I mean, that's a, a triumph in many ways. It's the reason yeah. I'm a Bond fan. It brought me into the fold yeah. as, as a child. Um, but, you know, it, it's interesting to see that sort of transition with Pierce. How long was he part of the production for until you lost him? 
Well, we did the tests, mm -hmm. and uh, they were very, very good. And uh, we sent them out to America, and they approved him as Bond. And um, we came back, and we celebrated. Um, we had dinner at the White Elephant with Cubby and Pierce and had a celebratory lunch. And the phone rang, and um, Pinewood Studios was, was on fire. Our 007 stage was alight. Um, Ridley Scott was doing a film there, and uh, during the lunch hour, uh, the set caught fire and it burnt the stage down. You wouldn't believe it. The stage made of steel and concrete and was just rubble. And then, of course, uh, the Mary Tyler Moore thing came up and uh, and Pierce had to go by his contract. He'd signed a, an open contract with her and uh, therefore it precluded him from, from taking the part, really. Um, but, you know, all these things, that's when... Uh, when Timothy entered the fray, and well, I always remember we we had dinner at Michael Wilson's place with Timothy, and we discussed it, and we we agreed that we he would become a more serious Bond of the Fleming type. It didn't mean that he wouldn't have the humour, but um, you know he'd be we'd try and really make use of his acting ability, and uh, and we, I think we succeeded. Mm. Mm. I think in some ways those films are a little bit ahead of their time because I think the Daniel Craig films are very much in that vein now. Yeah. 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 Well, that's the great thing about Bond. The actors, whichever actor you choose, uh, you have to sort of say, what are their strong points? And take full advantage of it. Uh, it's a sensible approach. Um, I think probably when Roger Moore took over from Sean Connery, shall we say, mm. um, the first couple of films, he he didn't really... He didn't really put stamp his own personality on the part. He must have had like one foot in the Sean Connery camp and one shot, one one foot in the in his own personality. And um, and Roger had lots of personality, believe me. And I think once we once Spy Who Loved Me was a very good film, and I think that was when Roger really cemented the part, you know. Mm. And uh, from then on in, that's you know he, he made the part his own. Yeah, he was very successful as Bond. Yeah. Well, let's take a quick break, and then we'll be right back. You mentioned earlier, obviously, the they were running out of Fleming novels to adapt, and one thing I noticed about. The, Dal the two Dalton films, Living Daylights and License to Kill, they did have a feeling of being on the pulse of current events because in 1985 you had something called The Year of the Spy where there were so many defections going on in the real world um, and famously Oleg Gordievsky. And then and then with uh, License to Kill, you've got sort of this drug baron Sanchez. And I was wondering if you had any insight and just sort of um, what the inspiration for those sort of two topics were really in those films. I suppose um, you know when we look back on that time, you're right. It was it was the era of the spies. You know, I can always remember the chap who, who was who was killed with an umbrella mm. uh, which had a poison tip on it uh, on London Bridge. Mm. It sounds far fetched, doesn't it? Mm. But um, you know, people were assassinated in, in ingenious ways, and it was almost like a James Bond film. Mm. Um, things change, you know. The styles change. Uh, I, th I think that, in a way, there was far more meat for, for a Bond story in those days than there probably is today. Mm. It gets more and more difficult, actually, to fit Bond into the present day. Uh, you, you want to see Bond actually doing a hand-to-hand -hand stuff with in, in action. Uh, I, I think the electronics and that are so sophisticated now that they're taking a lot of the fun out of making movies. Um, you know, there are, you have to scratch your brain a bit to do something original. But, you know, we, we always did very good things on trains, for instance. Mm. You know, we've had some wonderful, I mean, for Russia with Love, you know, the big scene on the, on the train there. Uh, there's always a fight and very sophisticated dialogue. You know, how did you know I, uh, I was who I said I was? And, and and he said, well, you ordered something or some wine, the wrong wine with your meal. What's that? So, uh, you know, so it was very clever dialogue, really. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and, of course, Robert Shaw was a wonderful adversary to mm. Bond. Mm. Um, he he would have made a wonderful Bond, Robert yeah. Shaw. 
But um, there you go. Yeah, so times change, and you you have to change with them. Yeah, yeah. And we used to write the scripts. I mean, we took a big chance with the drug thing on License to Kill because, I mean, it, you know, it is a terribly hard, harsh, cruel business, and um, they kill not only do they kill the people, they kill their families, they kill everybody. Uh, they're a ruthless lot kind of bit hard to make a, a Bond movie with that background and we did take a risk and um, I mean you look at License to Kill now I mean it's, it's far more acceptable now than mm. it was when we made it mm. I think yeah, but uh, we tried to be realistic and honest about it and um, yeah, it's a good film I'm very proud of it I think it holds up very well I saw it last year at the Prince Charles Cinema I can't remember if you were there Scott but um, just watching it on the big screen and one of the big things I appreciate uh, I'm sort of transitioning a bit into the technical side of things now but um, were the practical stunts that you use because obviously today we use a lot of computer generated technology that I, I find just takes the the believability out of sequences and you've got this spectacular stuff with aircraft you've got that amazing tanker chase and i suppose i'm really fascinated by a what inspired those sort of sequences and b how did you go about sort of doing them because especially the aircraft stuff is, yeah. and, and the tanker yeah i mean the the airplane for instance um we flew it over via the, the particular plane we found in america and um we we f flew it over via Iceland. It had a limited range, you know, and uh, then flew on to uh, Denham Airfield. And then we, um, in the field opposite the studio at Pinewood, uh, there's a, there was a farmer's field with a fence mm. uh, in the centre and a hedge. And um, with the farmer's p permission, we bulldozed his hedge down enough for the plane to land and we actually flew it from Denham and landed it actually just outside the studio. Yeah. And we took it to pieces and put it on the set and did all our close shots uh, on the set. And was that the plane Pinewood. for Living Daylights, that plane? Or? Yeah. 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 Yeah, the Hercules sequence. That's brilliant. No, the Hercules. No, it wasn't the Hercules. We didn't, oh, put, the, we didn't put the Hercules no. down the field. It <laughs> would, that wouldn't have worked. No. Uh, but um, no, it was the one. Uh, I, it was the one in India where, where they were on the outside of the aeroplane, having yeah. a fight on the outside of the aeroplane. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. The um, twin beach, I think it is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it was a beach aircraft. Yeah. Um, you know, Peter Lamont, uh, who unfortunately died a couple of years ago, uh, was a superb designer. Mm. And nothing was a problem, you know. Mm. Like on the train sequence, we had a a, a backing, a moving backing, which we laid so it was horizontal. And we had a crane. We lifted the locomotive over the top of the this moving backing, and we painted railway lines on the backing. And that's how we did all that close shot of uh, of Roger underneath the train mm. having a fight and being hacked at by uh, the, the Indian. Yeah adversary who had a sword and was uh, severed the pipes of the, the air pipes and it was very exciting scene yeah. actually yeah and um we had this sort of 20 ton locomotive hanging over the top of bond and mm. and we played that scene there with this moving back in which we used quite a lot in films um, um you know projection rear projection is very good for certain scenes yeah yeah but you do lose quality. Mm. Uh, so yeah. we used to avoid that wherever possible. Yeah. So if we could yeah. use a moving back in, yeah. it was better for the photography yeah. than using uh, front, uh, front projection or, or rear projection. Yeah, got you. I think with License to Kill, it didn't seem there was so much rear projection, especially it's that tanker sequence. Quite a lot's going on. You've got this moment where Timothy Dalton's jumping from the crop duster plane to the tanker itself. Then he's getting shot at. It's all sorts of things kind of going on. How did you sort of break those bits up? Because there's quite a lot of moving well, parts there. I spent about a week down at um, Mexicali mm. in Mexico shooting all the, act the main actors, mm. Roger mm. and so forth. Uh, Timothy's brother, what am I talking about, Roger? Timothy, <laughs> yeah. doing the close shots yeah. and so forth. So I did the minimum that I could do there. And Arthur Worcester, who again has departed, I'm afraid, mm. who was a wonderful second unit director and cameraman. Uh, again, the art of delegation. Yeah. You, you pick these people and they're fantastic. And uh, he spent, a bit, he must have spent a month down there with Barbara mm. Broccoli. Uh, she was producing that part of it. 
and it's it's an incredible scene that mm. truck sequence mm. and it was very dangerous yeah. and a lot of that stuff we did with doubles mm. and you know the slightest slip they fell down you got what 16 wheels on the, every truck you, you know, it'd be very difficult to miss anyone um, but fortunately we, we had a few accidents but nothing serious too serious mm. um, but those those trucks were very unforgiving mm. And uh, when you you know you're dealing with us moving things, most most of it was done for real. I yeah. must tell you. But uh, well, there's one shot that pops in my head where I think it's the it's after the rocket's been fired at Timothy. I think the truck's blown up, and then um, the car that was chasing him is now on fire and kind of goes off a cliff, and it just narrowly avoids Pam in the plane. It's like it's been fired off. How do you get the timing of those? Things? Exactly, it was difficult. Well, I was a bit I was a bit scared on that, yeah. that one that um, uh, John Richardson, who was our special effects supervisor is mm. an absolute wizard. We we made a, a scaled down version of the car. He constructed it like yeah. a third size. Yeah. And he fired it out of an air cannon. Yeah. And Corky Fornoff, who was the pilot of the um, of the aeroplane, he was a bit worried. He said, well, you know, uh, so I said, well, you know, it, we'll shoot it in such a way that it will look a lot closer mm. to hitting the, your aeroplane. But Hopefully it won't, but John couldn't test it really because it would have destroyed the actual uh, mock-up mm. car. So we, he just worked it out, and he's very clever. And uh, we just did one take of it, and uh, it, it was fine. Mm. It was good. Yeah, it looks really good. But we see we used a similar thing on uh, Octopussy when um, when uh, the locomotive hits the car mm. and the car mm. nearly takes the, the fisherman down in the, in the Neen River yeah. down below. And um, that was tight. That was really tight. That did actually hit the boat. And these two or three stuntmen who were supposed to be fishermen would really jump for their lives, I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Wait, uh, um, yeah, doing it for real definitely makes it look good. And I suppose it looks even better when people actually are running for their yeah. lives. But uh, I don't think we'll get away with that these days, would we? <laughs> Probably not. I'm sure there's too many uh, health and safety check boxes we need to do to uh, get these sorts of things done now. But I, I was just sort of maybe wrapping up the stunt side of things for it. But one thing I always say about your films, John, is you know how to do action. All of your films, the action is tremendous and you can just watch it and be wowed about what you see on the screen. So maybe more of a general question for all the films that you worked on as a director. What, what do you think makes a good action sequence and how did you get that in your films? Well, you plan it. You draw it all up. Um, I'm the world's worst artist, but I used to do my own little storyboards, uh, little stick insects and arrows and instructions. Mm. And then I'd employ good artists to come in, sometimes two at the same time. And um, they would then embellish my drawings. And uh, I used to look at their storyboards after they they use mine as a guide, but you know, then they confer with me every now and again. And say, well, did you mean this and all that? And uh, Roger Deere was a very good artist, and he used to draw his his storyboards sometimes outside the frame. You know, he would extend the the, the storyboard so it was outside the, the little square of the frame. Sure. And um, he was he was brilliant. And um, when they were so good, the, the, his drawings from my terrible drawings, um, that it used to inspire people. And I used to post them all around the room in my office, all these sequences. Like the truck sequence was a huge sequence. It was about, I don't know, 25 minutes long in the mm -hmm. film. You know, it, was, it occupied the whole of my offices, all the drawings. So it's all planned. And on a bomb film, sometimes we'd have four units shooting... The same scene. Mm -hmm. uh, I would concentrate. I used to do the second unit, so you know I'm very familiar with how it all works. Mm -hmm. But you'd have an underwater sequence, so you'd have specialists, underwater cameramen, and so forth. Mm -hmm. And in fact, on for your eyes only, we were filming the top side of the chase um, of the scene where the villains trying to to drown Roger and the girl. They're mm -hmm. tied together. I was doing the stuff on the surface at the exactly the same time that um, our underwater camera crew were out in the Bahamas shooting what was going on underneath. Uh, and it's planning, you know, and I loved it. Just the planning, these action, they were all drawn. Everyone knew what they were doing. And the beauty of it is that if you, a lot of directors won't delegate. With action, you have to delegate because 
you'd, otherwise you'd never do it. You'd run out of time. And uh, the second, third, fourth units can do it again and again. I can see the rushes and say, no, it's not to have another go, you know. And it doesn't cost a fortune. But on the first unit, you're dealing with the actors, you know, thousands of pounds a minute, you know. You, time is precious and you can't go behind schedule. Uh, otherwise, it just throws, I mean, you're shooting for six months. You can imagine the overages if you start going out of schedule, and uh, you only you hire actors for certain scenes for certain days. Mm. But if you get out of sync with that, it can be very expensive. I can hear the dollar signs just uh, yeah. rattling up oh, in the background. But you have to be aware of that. You 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 share that trait then with Alfred Hitchcock because he famously he drew out almost every single moment of every single film he ever did um, mm. meticulously, mm. and that's why he's such a visually was a visually dynamic filmmaker. Yeah, well, you buy time, you see. Mm. Um, if you if you're sensible, and you know your limitations, you know what you can do and what you can't do, and um, you get you get you pick your own crew, and you pick great aerial cameramen like B J Worth. Um, you know, wonderful guys to work with. Um, young, inexperienced in film, but wonderful what they do. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I did Moonraker, the pre-title sequence on Moonraker out in California. We go to California because the weather's better, <laughs> frankly. Sure. <laughs> you try and shoot an aerial sequence in England, you, you could be there for six months before you got the... But you got the nice blue skies and, and they got a quite a different attitude there with aeroplanes are like easy to work with in in america um so we used to do a lot of air aerial stuff in america and uh, i was out in the napa valley for about three weeks on moonraker and i'd drawn it all up and uh, i was edit being an editor as well i was editing my materials i went along as i was shooting each two second segment of the, of the airborne chase um airborne fight yeah uh, the concept of you know Roger being pushed out of a plane without a parachute has to catch up with a guy who's already jumped who has a parachute wrestle the parachute away from him put it on and then he gets hit by jaws um it sounds simple doesn't it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's <is> not <laughs> very general question what do you think are the essential ingredients of a good bond film well Action's very important, mm -hmm. extremely important. The stories are a bit, a little, don't have to be that strong, but they need to be simple, mm. understandable. Um, you've got to have the humour. It's a special kind of humour. Uh, Tongue-in-cheek, you know, is, is sensual on a bond. Um, it's a delicate balance. Uh, I mean, some people probably look at my films and think oh, maybe I went a little bit too comic on some of the stuff. I mean, I was probably influenced by... The Keystone Cops and all those early things I saw when I was a kid, you know, mm -hmm. yes, kid cinema. Um, I used to go to the Astoria at Ashford on uh, Saturday morning. I really looked forward to it. I think that's probably where my creativity in terms of action came from. We're all full of kids and, you know, daring do's going on on the screen. And and I, I seem to remember all that stuff, you know. It's strange, isn't it? You, it just sinks into your subconscious and... But I guess I was pretty good at action because I was an editor and I could visualise action in small segments. You know, you think of a, a simple thing and maybe there's a car crash and someone gets thrown out and someone dies and someone does this and does that. But you then you've got to break it down into easy-to-film segments. Uh, don't try and do too much in one, if you follow me, otherwise it'll all go wrong. Um, it's complicated, uh, and there is a safety aspect to it. You know, if you, you're doing a, a, a dangerous stunt. I mean, I, I, probably my most famous scene is the ski parachute uh, jump in Spy Who Loved Me. At the, uh, it was the first thing we ever shot on uh, Spy Who Loved Me, and uh, I was working with uh, Lewis in Paris, Lewis Gilbert. He came in, he said, I've got to have lunch with Cubby Broccoli today. He's just flown in from America. So he went off and had lunch with Cubby. And uh, when he came back, he said, oh, Cubby, it's very keen for you to do some some of the action shooting on the movie. You know, he was praising you for the work you did on the Magister Secret Service and what have you. 
and um, you know the Bob Say sequence principally, mm -hmm. which Cubby and I both enjoy going down on the Bob Say run. And uh, he said, uh, we've got to find something for John to do. Well, the problem was I was finishing with Lewis and there was a three-month gap before the, the film was going to start. So they've got to write it all and everything, you know, so it's at least three months. So he talked to Cubby about it and he came back and he said, well, don't worry, we'll find you something to do. And that something to do was to do that pre-title sequence with Rick Sylvester. Just that little sequence that everyone loves and is one yeah, of the best open I mean, that cost time. us, Lewis said afterwards, he said that sequence cost as much mm. as one of my feature films cost, you know, on one of his early films. Mm. Like, um, I mean, one of his best films was the film with um, Michael Caine, Alfie. Oh, yes. Yeah. One of my favourite films. I just love it. Lewis is a very simple director, very easy to work with. Uh, you know what you're doing, boy, get on with it sort of thing. That was his, <laughs> so I can remember him saying that to me. Yeah, he gave you some rough outline of what he wanted and he said, go on, you get on with it. And, you know, he, he gave you a lot of freedom. Uh, was, you learn from them. He was, he was a master filmmaker and uh, one of the most prolific directors we've ever had in this country. Terrific. That just sparks your imagination, doesn't it, though? Because they give you the sort of freedom to go and do it and you yeah. have to then envision it and create yeah, something. That's, that's right. That, that also allows yeah, you to Yeah, I grow. mean, you know, you plan these things. I mean, the, the whole essence of the Bond action scenes is they were planned. Mm -hmm. Certainly in my day, they, you know, we... You have to you have to storyboard it because otherwise, everyone has their own interpretation of and and you allow them a certain you know you allow them a certain latitude on what when they do it you know Arthur Worcester would telephone me in the middle of some somewhere and say, oh it's not working because of so and so and I'd quickly say well change it to whatever yeah fine go ahead change it and I'll sort it out. Um, you can't really swim against the tide sometimes you have to go with it. <laughs> Know your strengths and play to them, I say. Well, one thing I wanted to ask and sort of bouncing off of Chris's question a little bit was baddies. One of the things I always say, again, apart from action with your films, is you do some fantastic villains. Mm. I recently spoke with Robert Davy, oh. and he did nothing but praise your direction in the film and said he's, you're, you remain one of the best actors he's ever, sorry, best directors he's ever worked with. And I wanted to sort of throw that comment and that sort of, to you and ask what do you think makes a good villain because i think you made several great villains oh i think we you know they have to be almost as equal to bond uh, i think that's the secret that they are an adversary that is their equal so they have to pit their wits against each other and um, you're always looking for that and darby robert darby was a, a brilliant uh, villain in fact we dressed him up um, we were testing some girls for various parts in hollywood and uh, we dressed Robert up in his tuxedo and he played Bond for the tests. Mm -hmm. uh, and he was brilliant as Bond. He was a rugged Bond, you know. And, uh, I mean, Robert is handsome in a rugged way. He, he's like your typical hoodlum, if you like, in, in, in terms of um, mafia type mm -hmm. you would use in a film. It's perfect, you know, Al Capone or someone like that. Sure. It would be terrific, you know. But... He was also handsome in a very rugged way and uh, very masculine, very tough and uh, a pleasure to work with, very professional. For the sort of looking at your cavalcade of baddies, even like Christopher Walken, someone you work with, A View to a Kill, is it the casting that, that gets the best villain or is it coming from the script or is it a combination of the both? Where do you think that magic comes from? Well, it's it's very much a compilation job, really. Mm. I mean, you know, you you write, you have a you have a vision of of a villain, shall we say? Sure. And then you cast your net around, and who's available? Who will do it? You know, who's affordable? Mm -hmm. You know, Marlon Brando, I work with on uh, Christopher Columbus. Mm -hmm. You know, I was terrified. He was very lately. You know, he was cast at the last minute, if you like. And uh, his children were up on murder charges. And uh, he said to me, he said, I'm only doing this film to pay the lawyer's fees. Uh, but what a charming man. Uh, he was the exact opposite of what I expected. Mm -hmm. I, was, I trembled when I thought I'm dealing with this, the great, probably the greatest screen actor there's ever been, you know. And that's saying something, isn't it? 
but he, he turned out to be absolutely charming. Um, you know, it was towards the end of his career, so maybe he mellowed a bit, but I just found him so cooperative and so easy and so talented. Uh, he, he used to use a voice thing like a hearing aid, mm -hmm. and the lines were relayed from another room into his ear by a little radio. I didn't realize that initially. And uh, I kept saying, can you, yeah, I think you just speed that scene up a bit on that because he was pausing while he heard the stuff coming from next door. Mm -hmm. But uh, he'd reached that stage in his life where he couldn't remember or he didn't want to remember too much. Mm -hmm. And uh, he took the, yeah, he was clever. <laughs> but it worked. <laughs> it was magic on the screen, Marlon. Well, John, I, I think, unfortunately, we'll probably have to wrap up. But uh, thank you so much for your time today. It's been wonderful chatting with you. So thank you for joining us. It's today. been a pleasure. Yeah, thank, thank you, you very much. Thank you, Scott. Yeah. Well, it was great to hear that again. It was kind of, it was so kind of John and his wife, Janine, to have us over at their house. And um, I don't know about you, there was a few little pointers here and there that sort of stood out just listening back to it um one of the fun ones was the i enjoyed the discussion about some of the stunts in license to kill and how they managed to achieve that shot that i've always liked in the film where this car is sort of shot over an airplane looked incredibly dangerous and apparently they were using sort of a combination of miniatures and special angles with the photography that was quite fun i don't know if there's anything sort of for you scott well i mean there's nothing like particularly moment wise that stands out because i think the entire experience for me was just a really wonderful wonderful couple of hours basically we've to spend with John Glenn and, and meet his wife mm. and just to be welcomed into that house by him and I think welcomed is the right word here because he welcomes fans into the world of James Bond he clearly cares about James Bond about the films that he worked on not just the five he directed but you know he, he edited mm. on some before mm. that as well he's been part of the family for many years and he's still an ambassador for James Bond to this day so I think welcoming is the right word yeah indeed and he still holds the record for directing the most James Bond films and I don't really see that being beaten by anybody Martin Campbell uh, actually, no, Martin Campbell's even second yet, is he? Because you probably have what Lewis Gilbert and who else would you have? You're putting me on the spot for James Bond novels <laughs> when it's. it's uh, I know some things, but not a lot. Uh, where, where's my co-host Cam when I need him? He would he would have all these details for you. I, I, but no, I, I think um, well, I think some of those names are probably out of the running now, just because you know Father Time yeah. has been here. Yes, but yeah, uh, you know, I, I don't see Sam Mendes coming back for three more or Martin Campbell. No. No, no, indeed. Well, look, Scott, thank you again for joining me today. One last thing. The reason why I'm sort of putting this out around Christmas is for me, sort of James Bond movies always remind me of sort of bank holidays and Christmas. And I think one of my earliest Christmas James Bond memories was watching on Her Majesty's Secret Service whilst opening presents in 1989, which was a very long time ago now. I don't know if you have any kind of memories with James Bond and Christmas or bank holidays. It's, it's not so much tied into Christmas or bank holidays. My earliest James Bond memory is coming out of a screening of Tomorrow Never Dies and sitting in the back mm. of my parents' car and trying to drive it with I, I, some sort of implement I found in the back of the car, uh, just <laughs> thinking I was James Bond. And I was hooked from then on in. So, yeah, wonderful. Love it. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really cool... I, 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 I love Tomorrow Never Dies. I think it's a very underrated James Bond film. And, uh, yeah, that sequence where he has the, uh, the mobile phone to control the car, I think, fulfills a lot of fantasies for a lot of guys out there. I, I think we're all still <laughs> trying to get that now. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Well, we're getting closer, aren't we? <laughs> Scott, thank you again for joining me today. Where can listeners sort of find out more about you and your work at Spy Hearts? Well, um, it's a good time to pop on over and check us out. I mean, not only have we spoken to John Glenn in the past as well, and actually, folks, focused on, on Her Majesty's Secret Service, which you mentioned we had a long interview with him a few years ago. But just a couple of weeks ago, we brought out another director, uh, James Bond director interview with Lee Tamahori, the man behind Die Another Day. It's a fascinating conversation, a lot of insight into why that <laughs> film is what it is. Uh, I urge you all to oh, check it out. Yeah, it's a, it's a fun one. Uh, but you can find us, I mean, for spies, we are terrible at our jobs because you can find us literally <laughs> everywhere. Uh, you just search for Spy Hards, any, any podcast app, you'll find us. Social media, we're all at Spy Hards. Just look for us there. Excellent. Well, thank you again for joining me today. Thank you, Chris.
for listening. This is Secrets and Spies. 